0: Welcome to this special Conversations Shelter in Place episode of the Orbital Perspective podcast, where we dolly zoom out to a perspective where upcoming megatrends become visible. Every day, it is more and more apparent that we are in the midst of the great transition. Everything is changing rapidly. The fundamentals of business, government, and society are being rewritten almost on a daily basis. We are truly living during a time where the riskiest course of action is to stay the course. The most hazardous path is to take the tried and true. We are also living during a time where it is becoming more and more apparent that the status quo is not working. At least it's not working for everyone. And until the status quo is working for everyone, we will do nothing more and slap temporary band-aids on our problems and our challenges. We are presently dealing with crisis after crisis. But these crises can serve as a wake-up call. They can be our call to action to incorporate the changes necessary to make us all more resilient and better equipped to deal with the future crises that will undoubtedly come our way. The Orbital Perspective is all about transcending the divisive walls that separate us and embracing the awe and wonder of our shared humanity. What all the guests on the Orbital Perspective Podcast have in common is they are all able to see things from a slightly different perspective. And when we look at issues from different perspectives, we see things in stereoscopic vision. Multiple perspectives allow us to see the depth of a situation below the two-dimensional us versus them surface. The other thing all our guests have in common is they are all proof that you don't have to be in orbit to have the orbital perspective. Now this is not an interview and it's also not just a conversation between two friends. It's a conversation amongst all of us. If you're listening live, please post your questions and your comments so that we can bring you into the conversation. And if you're listening to the recorded conversation, still please join in with your comments and questions and be a part of this evolving community. Thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. T-minus 17 seconds and counting. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, go for main engine start, main engine start, 2, booster ignition
1: and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery returning to the space station paving the way for future missions beyond
0: happy friday everybody welcome to another conversation sheltered in place i hope everybody's doing well and navigating a crisis known as 2020. Uh, i'm really really excited uh, about our conversation today uh, i've become convinced, and I, I know my, my guest believes this, this as well, that we are in the midst of the great transition. And we have an opportunity um, through the challenges that we're facing right now uh, to come out the other side uh, and not go back to the status quo, but uh, go back to something different, um, something better. Um, and so, uh, I'm like I said, I'm really excited about uh, today's fellow converser, um, and it's uh, Danielle Cayembe. And uh, she's one of the most insightful people I know, and she's uh, uh, really in tune (laughs) with trends and and really in tune with um, what's going on right now. And I think this is gonna be a really uh, exciting and really uh, fruitful conversation. Danielle is a futurist and a serial entrepreneur who works on projects at the intersection of women tech and social impact. Through her company, Grayfire, she advises female founders in the US and emerging markets in Africa on scaling their businesses and raising capital. Danielle is an advisor to social impact startups and a mentor to Columbia University's Business Accelerator. She has lectured at Yale, Bernard, uh, Princeton Universities. Uh, Danielle is also a Rothschild Fellow. And this is an award that recognizes the top 20 global social impact entrepreneurs each year. She has been featured on CNBC and in Forbes and is a frequent speaker at the United Nations, TEDx, Google, General Assembly, and other events. Daniel is also the author of The Silent Rise of the Female-Driven Economy. And this is a position paper on women and the future of business and innovation. And this was published in an article on Refinery 21 that went viral. Uh, it's a great read. I highly recommend it. We put the, uh, the link to the article in the comments. Uh, And uh, like I said, I think everybody should read it. And with that, I hope everyone uh, please welcome uh, to Conversation Shelter to Place, Danielle Kayembe. Hey, Danielle, how are you?
1: Hi, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Ron.
0: It's my pleasure, it's my pleasure. I want to remind everybody that um, give us your comments, bring your questions. Thanks to everybody who's tuning in. I see people coming in from all over. Uh, and again, this is a this is a con- this is not just a conversation between two people. It's a conversation with all of us. You're all part of this conversation. So jump in. Um, so Daniel, why don't we just start up by you know, not everybody uh, might know who you are and what your background is. Can you can you share a little bit of that?
1: Sure. So I was originally born in the Congo, so the Democratic Republic of Congo, and my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was five. Um, most of my um, kind of career and early work was really in the business space. So, I started out as an investment banker. I did 25 billion dollars in deals on Wall Street and burned out, like many people would if you're working as much as it, that would require. It,
0: yeah, bringing all that money, in sounds like it would burn you out.
1: It would, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, hate to have that happened to me. <laughs> yeah, well, it, yeah, not to me personally. So, uh, uh, and, uh, I decided, um, to take a break. And in that time I actually started doing work in Africa and I got really, really inspired by the idea of seeing how the work I was doing there, um, which were, you know, I was doing deals that were the same size as the deals I was doing in the U.S. on Wall Street, but I could see the direct impact on the communities. So I could see, you know, lights going up. I could see markets and um, women get more empowered, and people become more active, and roads um, roads go in. And so I started really questioning myself: How can I take the skills that I have and use them um, to create greater impact? Um, and so as I was doing that, I started to see that um, as I was looking at how I could be the most effective, there were all of these big global challenges, whether it was environment, um, education, healthcare. But when you looked at all of the solution sets, you saw that the common denominator was actually empowering women across every major global challenge. And so I dedicated myself to saying, hey, I'm going to focus on how I can empower women. Um, And so a lot of the work I've done has been supporting female entrepreneurs or social impact entrepreneurs, um, both on the continent and also in the U.S. And through doing that work, I started to see these um, synchronicities. So I started to see that there was a very specific type of innovation that women were doing that um, no one was really talking about. And that led me to essentially... Um, write my article and talk about the importance of design and creating access and in in driving new types of innovation.
0: Right, and I mean your your focus of your work is on on gender equity and and empowering women, and that's why I, I, to honor that I wore this shirt today. Can you see that?
1: Yes, Satoshi. <laughs> so what does, Satoshi. That mean? what does that What does yeah. that
0: t-shirt mean to you? Um, <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> So I actually watched someone give a talk about blockchain yesterday and they they said that, you know, the founder of blockchain, he uh, did X, Y or Z. And the the truth is that the founder is anonymous. So no one actually knows who the founder is. And so um, the values espoused in blockchain, which are actually focused on creating trust, um, bridging communities, allowing people to, um, you know, make contact and um, interact with each other free from borders. And uh, it felt like a much more universal concept, I think, than probably in some ways transcends gender. And so I think Satoshi is female is an attempt to really make that um, more universal and more welcoming, especially to women. So um, my friend Nyla Rogers, who I think you know as well, has really been leading that that discussion, and uh, I wholly support it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, to me, it's you know all those things that you that you mentioned, those aspects of blockchain, which all those aspects of a distributed information system, right? That yeah. democratizes information, that basically does things like potentially making uh, corruption obsolete and things like that. Um, it, it's it's a tool that levels the playing field. It 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 seems. <laughs> Like it's more likely that a system like that would be designed by a female than a male, so um, I don't, you know, I think it's more welcoming as well. But I think it, it might be there might be some truth to truth of that as well. So we met at the UN. Do you remember? Yeah,
1: that? I do. Yeah.
0: Was it, wait? Did we did we actually meet at the UN or do we meet uh, at the screening of planetary? Planetary,
1: I think, or the UN. Both. I, I I know we were in both rooms for sure. Yeah.
0: But we the, our, our most recent time together was uh, right before um, the pandemic hit, we were in Davos together and we had a wonderful uh, rooftop conversation. Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about the potential of having a big transition or a great transition. And this is before we even knew any of the, any of the stuff that was about to happen, uh, yeah. We had no clue that any of that was happening. I mean, there was already, you know, in China, there, the the pandemic was was starting. Uh, it, it was just, just starting to get, you know, some of the echoes of uh, or the, the reverberations of what was going on. But I don't think anybody had uh, a clue what was about to happen. Uh, but I I just remember that, you know, star, star filled night, you know, up on the rooftop, you know, talking about all this. And a lot of what we talked about is, is actually coming to fruition. Um, So let's, let's jump right in. Let's just talk about what, what we think is going on here. What do you think is going on here? (laughs) Is there more to this than meets the eye?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is ultimately like a, it is a great transition, and I loved when you sent me that this was the title of, of today's talk because I think that we're, um, the things that are happening are so big, and they hit both on a global scale and on a personal scale, and so I think we're, we're not having those conversations where we're stepping back. And looking at you know how what is really happening and how is this affecting us? So I think this is so valuable that you're you're creating the space for that. Um, I feel like the way that I, I look at it, and I love being able to have this conversation with you. You know, COVID, in a lot of ways, having this global pandemic, and then you know now we're kind of in you know a domestic revolution, for lack of a better word. Um, it's really a testing ground for how we collectively address the global challenges um, that we are facing, you know, and I think in a lot of ways COVID is revealing um, so much of what is not okay, but it's also just showing us, you know, I think it's a precursor, right? So many of the challenges the large challenges that we face as a global community, things like climate change, for example. I mean, these are, these are things that affect all of us, obviously personally, but essentially we have to respond as a global community. And I think COVID is revealing the ways that we're not equipped to do that. But I think this is the first of probably many challenges that we have to take on and find new ways to address that we haven't been able to do as a collective before.
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, you bring out a really, really good point. And I think part of the status quo I was talking about is is right now the default. Well, you know, you you talk about the default uh, in in design being male. Right. And we'll talk about we'll talk about that in a second. But the default in the problem solving realm is usually national. Right. Mm So usually we think of of terms of problems and, and challenges in terms of our 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 nation, right, yeah. and and our loyalty goes towards you know our own particular particular flag, our own particular nation. Um, one of the interesting things that, that has evolved is multinational corporations, and so now most of that that span borders, yeah. right. Now the loyalty goes to the shareholders, right? In a global, in a so we move from national to global, right? Yeah. The problem is that although that does allow us to have collaboration that crosses borders, uh, it just changes the loyalty from a flag to a shareholder. A shareholder report, right? And that's and that's what's global is all about. And part of the pro- part of the old status quo that I think needs to change is the best we can do right now is global to attack our problems globally. That's the best we can do. We need to attack them planetary, not global, because.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: when you attack them from a planetary point of view the ultimate loyalty doesn't go to the shareholder the ultimate loyalty goes to, to the continuance of our species and the continuance of all all the species on our planet and and protecting the biosphere and the life support systems of our planet i think that that's a really important thing what, i mean the, how do, how does that how does that resonate with you and and what and what you've seen in 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 your entrepreneurship
1: I think that's so, I think that's so important um, because I think you bring a really specific perspective that obviously very few people on the planet have, right? Um, Of seeing um, the ways that we are um, interconnected, right? The ways that we are actually all um, on this collective journey together. Um, And I think that that brings a different element to the conversation because it changes it changes what's at stake um, and you know I think we've all been we've all been kind of trained to look at things from a really binary perspective right and and it's so hard I think to get out of that. Um, I think that in the I think that in the in the entrepreneurship space where you see the most innovation towards that is probably what you know, represented by the shirt that you're wearing right I think blockchain actually the innovation that you see there is actually all about transparency it's all about redistribution it's all about putting um, power and um, I think collective responsibility back in the hands of the individuals and really kind of putting everyone back at the same at the same level um, and I feel like there's there's something really powerful about how, you know, blockchain um, has a potential to transform how we operate outside of the system, outside of this broken systems that we're in right now. Um, and in some ways, does, you know, does blockchain represent the evil, right? The fact that maybe we actually are rapidly evolving in some ways, right? Like these technologies are reflecting us as a, we have some the I'm other way some, around.
0: We're having some growing pains. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
0: Cool. So, uh, uh, Thomas Dolores uh, brought out private equity should be mentioned along with, with shareholders. Um, I'm I'm not exactly sure what he means by that. Maybe you have a better read on that. Um, as far yeah. As-
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of activity in venture capital and private equity um, that we are starting to see some of the largest players in that space start to focus specifically on impact. And um, start to allocate dollars not only based on collective global challenges, um, but also based on kind of almost like a new moral code. So um, I think the chairman of what I think I think it's BlackRock, one of the largest private equity companies, came forward and essentially said that they were going to, you know, allocate their considerable um, considerable um, holdings. Um, with a focus on social impact and climate change um, and specific principles going forward, um, which I think really sent um, positive shockwaves through that industry, that there sure. would really be kind of a new um, a new approach. And you're seeing a lot of the same thing in the venture capital space, um, where a lot of the largest investors in early stage companies are now making large bets in, um, in, uh, you know, climate change, um, and tech that, that impacts and supports that. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I, I think you probably agree with this. I believe that business enterprise has the incredible power to either destroy our world by clinging to the, the old way of doing things, the, uh, two-dimensional winner at all costs, uh, you know, um, competition, conquest, you know, profit maximization at all costs, or it has the, power to save our world by embracing a new way of doing things like like you, you talk about. And finance is the rocket fuel of, of business enterprise. And so one of the root causes of the problems that we face is the way that capital uh, and investment is flowing around the world and what it's what it's flowing towards. And you know, we really need to be careful, you know, not only do we have to recycle plastic, we need to <laughs> we need to yeah. keep keep track of where our investment dollars are going and what they're and what they're going to invest in um and i think you know you and i have both spoken at the un on this topic of trying to wow. steer uh, investment uh towards the sdgs so the sustainable development goals but you know towards triple you know triple bottom line products and or, or yeah. projects and and esg and, er- and everything else and I, I again we're not gonna unless we hit the root cause problems we're not gonna we're not gonna do more than slap band-aids on things. So,
1: Yeah, I think that there's, I think there's absolutely a movement towards greater accountability. I think that um, we're even starting to see, you know, in the UK, um, they're looking at, you know, placing legislation that companies that are not focused on um, ESG are may actually be delisted um, within the next few years. Um, we're also seeing um, legislation in, I think, California, France, and a handful of other countries. I think definitely um, kind of Norway and some of those places where um, you have to have female representation on your board. Um, so I think that we are seeing. Um, some of these things you know some of these types of accountability become the norm and become the expectation that yes as a company you have a responsibility but again i would say i've been i don't know how closely you're following but i've been really pleasantly surprised by the the impact of not only covid but the black lives matters protest and there's been a tangible shift in how, in what corporate responsibility means
0: mm-hmm.
1: and what it means to be a good corporate citizen. Yeah. And I, yeah, go ahead.
0: I, I, mean, I, I think hopefully we're moving out of the era where companies, you know, had uh, their corp- corporate social responsibility offices, you know, in a silo that, you know, they allocated, you know, a small fraction of the budget where they spent more money advertising in- you know, telling everybody about the good that they were doing and the actual good that they were doing. Right. We're seeing more and more uh, companies where they're starting to write that into their DNA, right? And, and those are going to be the successful companies of the near future, not, not the far future, the near future, those companies, because people people have had enough. They're, they've had enough of, of you know big corporations taking advantage of, of people, of taking advantage of the environment, taking advantage of society, uh, and feeding off society for that matter. And they're starting through their pocketbooks, you know, to hold these, these companies accountable. And I I think it's a good trend. It needs to continue and accelerate though.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think Unilever is one of the companies that's been a leader in really integrating, um, you know, essentially SDGs and ESG into each individual brand. So you can actually go on their website and Paul Pullman, I think really kind of revolutionized um, a lot of this type of reporting, but you can see for each brand and business unit um, what their commitments are to the environment, to the communities where they do business, to the communities that they sell their products to. um, And you can track their, you know, progress on a 10 year Um, on a 10 year cycle. And, you know, I think other companies are starting to follow suit in terms of, you know, real transparency and accountability um, with the public. But I think that's what the public expects now, right? People are are voting with their dollars much more than they ever were before. Yeah, and I
0: think there's two requirements for a business to, to move in the direction that Unilever did. One is you need strong leadership. And the other one is you need to take the the focus off of the short term and put it more on the long term. So in Paul Pullman's case, you know he he had the leadership to to convince uh, his his board of directors and his shareholders that they need to play the long game and they need to you know not worry, you know not be completely 100% focused on the next shareholder report, right? And to and to start seeing this bigger picture. So we got we have a note uh, from M. Adam. Can COVID reset the agenda in African countries to necessitate change for the better? Or will COVID create regression in these economies, specifically Congo? I just read like an hour ago, the DRC, uh, along with the World Health Organization, announced that they just uh, beat the latest Ebola um, pandemic that was going on there. So um, what do you think about that one?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Africa is a really interesting case because Africa actually... Um, 19 of the world's 20th youngest youth populations are actually in Africa. And so if you compare that to Asia, China, the US, Europe, um, these other, you know, I think Western countries in Asia, they have anywhere from 30 to 40% of their population is actually over the age of 55, which is the essentially the audience that's most at risk for COVID. Um, And so part of the restrictions around COVID have been focused on, um, you know, keeping people sheltering in place so that you essentially flatten the curve so that the health services are not flooded. However, in Africa, you don't have a healthy health care infrastructure, right? And you also have a population <laughs> that's less likely to get COVID um, because of age and other factors. So it's it's been a little bit of less, a mix. less likely
0: to get it or less likely to die from it.
1: Well they may get it, but I think le- less likely to die or have you know seri- serious they don't have the um, comorbidities that typically lead to like the need for hospitalization, more serious care. Um, so it's been a mixed bag in terms of the impact in Africa. Um, I think that's similar to Ebola, what you've seen is a reallocation of resources um, away from some of the existing challenges. So for example, um, women are still having children, <laughs> even during COVID, right? Women who are pregnant are still still need care. And so um, you have uh, resources that are allocated away from basic types of care. Um, And quite honestly, women are usually kind of the first to lose support when things like this happen. Uh, So you're seeing that. You're also seeing um, impact on things like trade, um, foreign direct investment, um, things like remittances So there's, you know, probably close to 50 billion in remittances, which is um, family that's abroad sending money back every month um, to relatives in Africa. So you're seeing kind of the impact of COVID in the West, impacting, you know, how that's translating to financial support for families there on the ground. And then obviously, the big one is going to be tourism you know, yeah. you've seen tourism um, cut down significantly, um, because people are are not traveling in Europe, not traveling in Asia, not traveling in the US. Um, and, you know, not feeling like they they are safe to travel to Africa. So you're seeing some of those things as, as kind of the biggest impacts. Um, but, you know, I think the bright side is that Um, because Africa has been wrestling with challenges like Ebola for the last several years, they have contact tracing, um, protocols in place that Western countries don't have. So what I'm, you know, some of what we're seeing is that I think, especially in places like South Africa, they're leveraging some of that mobile contact tracing, um, in order to do that. They also have a jump on us in terms of, um, Things like mobile payments, so M-Pesa um, in, in Kenya, and um, it, for example, is extremely um, sophisticated form of mobile money that people use, um, and so things like that allow people to continue to trade, um, even if you know they're now focusing more on home delivery um, than going into public places and exchanging goods.
0: Yeah, there's a lot we can learn from uh, other countries right now. I mean, I just just today I looked at the data. Um, and it sure looks like we're, we're turning in the wrong direction. It sure looks like the second wave is, is upon us, and we're starting to shoot back up again. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting. We talk about we're not going to go back to the status quo. There's going to be a lot of changes, and, and there's going to be some – Balancing acts that we're going to have to do, like a lot of the stuff you're talking about, like contact tracing and stuff like that, has has privacy implications, right? And you know, there's a big outcry around the country right now about people, you know, legislation that forces people to wear masks in in public places, and how that infringes on their freedom. Um, so there's a balancing act between individual freedoms and privacy, and the overall good of society. <laughs> so, right. So. It's going to be a tough type, you know, tough uh, road to to walk. I think to figure out how to thread that needle.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if I have a uh, <laughs> I don't know if I have a horse in that game. I think that's that's a complicated um, that's a complicated situation because I think um, I think the the challenge is more about leadership, and I think you know there's been market differences in types of leadership. Um, around the world um, that we've seen during COVID. Um, You know, I have friends that travel all over the world. My friends that have traveled to Korea, for example, have a very different travel arrival protocol than um, my friends do in the U.S. Um, You know, so I think that the, it's not about the masks or not the masks. For me, it's more about um, how are things communicated um, do people feel like they're, they're cared for and being provided for? Do people feel like there's a sense of stability and clarity? Um, I, think that those are, I think that that's what's creating the anxiety um, that, we're, that we're seeing people share.
0: I think it also stresses the need to make decisions and make policies based on the most accurate data that we have possible. And, you know, that that brings to mind a a quote by Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu. And he said, we cannot succeed by denying what exists. The acceptance of reality is the only place from which change can begin. And so this applies to COVID, it applies to to any problem that we're facing unless we start our, our problem solving process from a foundation of reality. Uh, we're going to lead down to disaster. And that that goes to your comments on leadership. And if we're sticking our head in the sand, which across the country right now, there's many leaders, both in our communities, uh, in our states, uh, and in the federal government that are not doing much more than sticking our heads in the sand and, and just wishing it all away. Um, and the other countries that are doing this successfully uh, are Taking the best data they have available, they're listening to the scientists, they're listening to the to the experts, and they're they're crafting out a plan. Uh, and again, they're not they're concentrating on the long term, not the short term. And what that means is, in the, if you concentrate solely on the short term and you and you base everything on the economy and getting the economy back right now, what that could really backfire on you because. The, what's going to be needed to get the, the economy really on track and firing on all cylinders for the long term is getting rid of the virus. And so if we're not willing to take the medicine right now, then you know the patient, the patient could possibly die. So we, gotta, we have to get off the short-term thinking, we have to get off this, the refusal to listen to real data, and we need to start attacking this um, in a rational way.
1: I completely agree with you. We're
0: having this conversation.
1: I mean, I, I completely agree with you. Um, everyone has to to have the same the same data and the same information, and I think there just needs to be greater transparency about um, you know what is or isn't accurate. Um, you know, you know. I mean, I think you know. You brought up the issue of masks earlier. I mean, we got multiple conflicting information about, you know, what to do or not to do. And so I think, you know, if that's happening uh, on, you know, a person to person level, imagine, you know, the impact for someone who's trying to run a business or a corporation. Um, So, you know, I think that, I think that there's no way to avoid there being some big systemic changes in the business world, Um, and other parts of our society as a result of what's happening. I think this is a historic moment. Um, There's, you know, nothing like this that's happened, you know, on the planet for hundreds of years. Uh, So, you know, we're going to need a different type of leadership to navigate this and a different type of perspective to make sense of this and um, result and to, I think, emerge from it better than we are now.
0: Yeah, I, I think the systemic change is, is what is what is needed at this at this moment in history, and um, hopefully this is the catalyst to, to make us want to do that. Um, because the stat, it should be obvious to everybody that the status quo is not working. And when I say that, I, mean, I don't mean the status quo isn't working for anybody. I'm, it's not. It's working for a few. <laughs> it's not. There, it's, it's not working for the vast majority of the folks. And until we have a status quo that works for everyone, we're not going to progress, we're not going to prosper. And one of the things that's obvious, I think, from this pandemic is that the, you know, the the saying we're almost together is not is not a cliche. It's the reality of the world that we live in. And you know, one of the analogies that has has dawned on me, which which is a, a, a translation, I think, of of what I've seen and what I experience in space. And that is that we we are a super organism. We are like not just us as humanity, but the entire planet and every living thing on it is a super organism. Mm-hmm. And you imagine the body of the superorganism is the Earth, right? So the so the, the Earth itself is the is the skeleton. It's the structure. It's the foundation. Uh, you know the animals and the and the plants together, complementary, are the lungs of the planet. The river systems and the and the water cycle is the circulatory system. Um, and then all the body, the, the actual living organism is all of the living things, and in embedded within this superorganism. Is another superorganism which serves as the brain, and that that's the superorganism known as humanity. The problem is right now that the superorganism known as humanity is unconscious, and it doesn't operate in in a manner that is in the best interest of the overall superbody. Right? It it, it reacts in um, reaction to its loudest parts. It, re, it reacts under animal instincts uh, to 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 benefit. You know small segments <laughs> but until we realize that this is the reality of the world we live in we're not going to be able to progress and prosper and solve the problems that we face uh, again we'll do nothing more than slap band-aids on things we live in a in a deeply interconnected interdependent world where you can't just look at one thing without considering everything else everything affects everything else and with that i hope we could segue back into the great transition conversation. Cause I know that you have some deep insights into that and what's on, uh, cause I know we talked about it before all this stuff happened, um, that we are that we are on the eve of, of something big and neither one of us knew what that something big was. Uh, now we do, it's called 2020. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, but how about, how about some glimpses of hope? Do, do you see any glimpses of hope out there?
1: Yeah. You know, I think that there's, you know, one of the things I, I've been, I look at is I, I, I identify trends as a futurist and I'm always kind of looking ahead. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that I see is that, um, the younger generation, so Gen Z, I think of them as, um, they fundamentally don't believe in duality. And that's something really, really interesting, right? Because if we look at everything in our world right now, it is all based on duality, right? So whether it's gender, whether it's race, power, whatever it is, right? Everything is essentially grounded so class. Exactly, everything is two dimensional. Um, and I think that there's some statistic that something like 86% of Gen Z doesn't believe in gender, right, which is right, which is mind blowing, right? Compared to um, the generations that have come before it. And so, they're kind of the first generation that we've tried to teach duality to that refuse to buy into it, right? And so I think that as a result of that... They're
0: refusing their programming.
1: Yeah, they're refusing it. Uh, um, And I think that that's why, you know, in a lot of ways, Gen Z are are really the ones that are driving this shift, right? And I think that part of the reason it's been so systemic um, and that we're seeing continued change and progress, right? Usually when we look at change uh, the last few hundred years, it's been really incremental, right? And we are all accustomed to that, right? Something goes wrong, um, you know, people make an apology and then, you know, we take a couple steps forward and then we take like three steps back. And we're all used to that cycle. Um, it's very rare that we see changes to um, not only, you um, the, how do I describe it? So not only symbolic, but also like systemic structures, right? So symbolic would be things like, you know, statues coming down, um, the impact in the media, right? So media really is what manages like our symbolism and narratives as a, as a community, as, um, as a society, they write the stories that we all kind of share in. Um, so we're seeing, you know, this kind of roll through and impact media. Um, and then we're also seeing changes at a systemic level, right? So we're seeing, you know, changes in corporations, we're seeing changes in legislation, we're seeing changes in law enforcement, and conversations that we thought would take a hundred years and would never be on the table are suddenly very rapidly part of our reality. Uh, and so, you know, so for me, I think there's a hope that we're living in the world of the future, <laughs> right? We're living in the world that's being shaped by um, the next generation that is going to, um, that is going to um, shepherd this world forward, and they don't seem to be interested in waiting, right? Yeah. <laughs> they seem to, to want these, these systemic uh, and symbolic changes now, and, and I find that very hopeful, um, I find it very hopeful because the fact that they don't believe um, in duality, um, I think brings us so much closer to your vision. Um, it brings us so much closer to um, to really seeing real progress towards a world where there's greater equality and there's greater um, uh, there's more space for everyone to participate.
0: You know, we we are living in the world of the future, and the reason why we're living in the world of the future is because our minds are not catching up with it. Because for all of human history, up until well, for all of human history up until now, um, we tend to think linearly, right? So, cause and effect, cause and effect, you right? right. know, on a linear, on a linear timeline. But you know, Moore's law for technology has demonstrated that things don't change. Necessarily on a linear um, scale, it change on an exponential scale. And really, if you look at nature, the rhythm of nature is exponential.
1: Yeah. So
0: I mean, the virus is a perfect example. The virus doesn't spread linearly; it spreads exponentially. So the the, the rhythm of nature is exponential, but our but our brains, the way we process, hasn't. So you know, we're 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 just constantly trying to keep ki- keep up with what what's going on, and we get far, farther and farther behind. And so, you know, I think one of the one of the big things to to think about is this fact that um things can happen so fast and they can happen overnight and that's why we we so I use, i like to so i in my new book i use a term called dolly zoom right and dolly mm-hmm. zoom is cinema is, is a technique in cinematography where you zoom the camera the lens in as as, as the same time you roll the camera back or vice versa and I use that as a, a metaphor and an analogy throughout the book to talk about how we have to dolly zoom situations. Right. And when we dolly zoom, we zoom out to the widest possible geographic perspective as we can. But as we do that, we we don't lose the details of the worm's eye um, view from the ground. Right. You can't zoom out to, to, you know, collective population of 8 billion people without and cause everybody to turn into numbers and statistics, you have to also keep the individual people in, in view. But we also, at the same time, it's temporal. It's not just geographic, right? It's, or spatial. It's, we have to look at the long-term effects of things without losing the short-term um, effects, right? They're both important. Um, and so if we, if we only focus on the long-term, we're, we're going to miss things because things are happening so fast because they're taking off exponentially if we if we only think of the short term then the course that we put ourselves on on this exponential path could could lead us to exponential bad or exponential good so we have to keep keep both of, both those in, in, in store so I want to make another plug for everybody to send us your comments and uh, and questions and, and and join this conversation um so defaults so defaults. we talked about we about uh, you know the default being national, uh, or or at best global, and the default should be planetary, um, in, in other words, to bring the biosphere of the planet into view. But you also talk about, especially in your in your article, about the default being male. Uh, do you yeah. want to talk about?
1: That? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I um, it's interesting. So I talk about. Um, what a concept that I call coded patriarchy, which is just kind of this assumption that everything is designed for a male default, right? And it's something that we we take for granted. And as a whole, women, take it for granted that they're uncomfortable as they move about the world day to day um, because of this default. And it's not just women, obviously, right? It's anyone who has um, any type of a physical challenge, um, anyone who's differently abled, children, um, elderly people, right? There's a lot of people that are excluded when things are designed in a certain way. And so a lot of the really simple examples that I like to give really sprang, um, uh, start, I'll give a, a couple of really simple examples. So the one I always start with is doors. And because we all go in and out of doors every day, one thing we never think about is that doors are actually designed for the tensile strength of an average man. And so, a lot of times, if you're going in and out of a corporate building, um, you'll, if you pay attention, you'll actually notice it's a little bit harder for women to open those doors um, or to push them open, even if they're revolving doors, right? Um, and it's something that probably your average man has never thought about. Um, another simple example I like to give is mobile phones. Uh, so, I'll flash my my phone here. Um, so phones are actually designed for men to use one-handed and fit in their pockets. And so because on average, a woman's hand is about two centimeters um, shorter um, from you know across their hand to their thumb, when women hold a mobile phone, they're more likely to drop it and break it. And so the experience of women um, interacting with that as a product is very, very different than it is for men. And so you might notice that a lot of women have rings and knobs and hooks on the back of their phone, and that's actually to make it easier for them to hold it comfortably. Um, And so you see examples, everything from, you know, virtual reality to the new iPhone. Um, There's examples essentially across every type of technology, the design of cities um, the design of transportation, um, where there's a default about who is using it and how they're using it. Um, and so, what I am really interested in is the fact that if you're the not the person that's been designed for, that means that every time you're interacting with this product or service or um, you know part of the city, you're experiencing pain points. And I think of all of those pain points as data. And so that means that over the course of a year, there's millions of you know, points of lost data because people think, oh, I'm having a problem with this experience, but no one cares, it doesn't matter, right? But all of that is data that should actually be used to drive innovation and to drive better products. And so my specific focus has been um, in products designed by women. Because what I really noticed was that women were taking their specific pain points and realizing that, hey, if this is a problem for me, it's a problem for millions of other women. And maybe that represents a market that hasn't been explored. And mm-hmm. so um, I think our mutual friends, Mickey and Rada, um, created Thinks, which came mm-hmm. out of their personal experience as women and saying, hey, you know, the period products that we have don't work. Can we take um, materials that have been created for, um, for, uh, skiing and hiking that are absorbent and serve all of these functions and re, you know, refit those to, you know, function for women in a completely different way. And the reason it didn't happen, the fr- you know, Fifty years ago or thirty years ago, when these materials were created, is there were probably no women in the room, right? Um, who who looked at those materials and said, "Hey, I could use this for a period product." Um, and so you see that you know their company has gone on to be incredibly uh, successful. There are companies like Honest Company, um, Zola, Glossier, um, and they're all kind of taking um, their specific pain points and you know, using that to drive innovation. Um, But you know, there are even things I think you and I were talking about this, when it comes to things like coded patriarchy, um, the spacesuits, right, recently, they wanted to do an all female um, space launch, and there wasn't equipment that was sized for women. Um, and when it comes to COVID, we're seeing the same thing with PPE right. equipment that right. it's also not sized for for female health workers. So um, it's one of those pervasive problems that we don't we don't think about design.
0: Right, and it's, it's, it's everywhere. Here's a, Thomas Delara says, a drug development testing revolves around men as well, sheesh. So <laughs> um, yeah, um, what's interesting about this is you would think that this wouldn't be the case. So on the one hand, you know, we've had patriarchy for, you know, millennial, millennia, uh, and almost exclusively throughout history, it's been, you know, it's a man's world, right? And, um, you know, the the door thing, that's why, that's probably why, you know, back in the day, it was very, you know, expected that men would hold the door open for women, right? Because I never really thought, well, part of that's because it's designed for, for, for men, but, the interesting point that you bring out in your article is that shouldn't be the case because the the vast uh, the by far the largest segment of the population who are the consumers are women. Um, yeah. And so the the almighty dollar should weigh out over over, um, you know, entrenched patriarchy. <laughs> so.
1: Right, which right, which is the the irony, right, that it doesn't. Um, yeah, you're, you know, women drive something like eighty five percent of all consumer spending decisions, even for, um, you know, things like cars, banks, insurance, finance, electronics. That we are, for whatever reason, assume are male decisions. Um, they're primarily taken and implemented by women, uh, and so there's no matter what type of business you're in, you are in the business of selling to women. And part of the reason is that um, if you ask men and women, um, your average man—I think it's something like 60 for the stat—is about 65% of men um, report only buying gifts for their wife, and it's usually once or twice a year that that happens. Um, by comparison women actually shop for the, not only themselves, but the whole family. And so women are buying for up to, you know, five people or more. Um, Your average woman has two and a half children over her, her lifetime. So it's her children, her husband or partner, um, her parents, his parents um, and then extended family. Right. And so women's um, scope of influence is actually much greater um than you would expect as a result of, of some of this behavior.
0: Mindset is if you want to make a woman's product, just make it pink and charge more for it, right?
1: Shrink it and pink it.
0: Shrink it and pink it. <laughs> <laughs> charge, shrink it, pink it, and charge more for it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that I mean that's been the default, the default mindset. And you know what that's led to is that um, when we look at um, venture capital, um 90 Eight percent of all new innovation is led by men. So only 2% of venture capital um, goes to female innovation. Um, and then if you look at um, founders of color, so women of color, it's actually 0.2% of funding goes to women of color. Um, so there's huge disparities that are created by this assumption of default. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, when we, when we talk about inequality, we don't talk about how profitable it is, right? Because it does skew where resources are allocated as a result of those, you know, types of expectations. So when we have these ideas of what is a default, or, you know, if I ask someone, what does an investor look like? What does a founder, a tech founder look like? What does a scientist look like? The the first five images that pop into their heads are you know probably going to look very specific, but they're probably not going to look like a woman, right? And they're probably not going to look like a woman of color. And so those defaults do drive expectations and drive the types of choices people make when they're allocating capital.
0: Agreed, agreed. I'm going to make a I'm going to make a last call for questions. Uh, Evan said all the funding, all the funding NASA gets, and they can't make it. Oh, I should pop it up there. So. Well, yeah, all the funny NASA gets and they can't make more than a few suits for women. Yeah, <laughs> I, and you know, it's it goes back to the default. To the, oh, the, the, the default was men. I, I can vouch for that. And uh, I remember, I remember. I mean, we had a, a recent incident, but there were there's been we've been talking about this at NASA for a long time. And I remember the the overarching uh, viewpoint. By the management was that's just the way it is. We've got you know we, we we're not we don't uh, we haven't we haven't um, designed for the 99th percentile or you know uh, in, as far as size goes, um, which is the wrong way to look at it because it's not the 99th percentile of women. <laughs> right. so, so, so and I, I don't quote me on the 99th percentile, but but I do remember that there was a general uh, feeling not amongst the women, of course uh, that this is just the way it is. And yeah, oh, well, I guess you don't get to do spacewalks. Um, we we don't have a, we don't have a seat to fit you. Um, what do you have in mind? What do you want to, what do you, in the, in the remaining time that we have, is there anything that uh, is gnawing on you to, to discuss?
1: I mean, I think that the, the other thing you and I talked a little bit about recently, we were talking about, um, you know, what's happening with, the the protests and you know some of those um, those impacts and I think it's you know it's really interesting one of my um, one of my uh, spiritual teachers um, gave a talk recently and and what he really reminded me of was that um, you know all throughout history there have always been people of conscience And whenever there's injustice, they, you know, rally together and they kind of, you know, come forward to help lead everyone. And I think that there's, um, I think so much of the narrative has been, is it, you know, is it black or white or is it, you know, and I, I think that it's been. It was really interesting to speak to him because I think for me that put it, you know, back in, you know, the context that, again, is about unity. Like we actually so many of us share um, kind of a collective will to to see a better world um, and share um, wanting to use our time and our energy towards, um, towards transforming where we are. And I think you asked me earlier, what gives me hope? And um, I'd say that during this time, I've been incredibly hopeful in seeing so many of you know, my friends and people in my life really step forward um, as allies and champions. And I I know that is privileged. I I don't think I know that that's not what everyone is experiencing. Um, But I've, you know, I've taken a lot of hope in seeing um, my friends and, um, you know, friends and people I know really show up um, in this time. Um, in a way that's been incredibly productive and really champion what's happening and champion the voices that are out there. So that's given me an incredible amount of hope.
0: Good. You know, I and we've discussed this before too, but I I don't see it as binary. I don't think we have a population of folks with a conscience and a a population of folks without (laughs) without a conscience. Um, I, I think there's at least one more group in there. So there's there's certainly people that have a conscience and, and, you know, are in the word, again, in the words of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you know, agree, understand that we can't succeed by denying what exists, and that we have to address what exists. Uh, but I, I think that is part of the problem. The part of the problem is that it's not that people don't have a, consci- uh, a conscience, that it's that they, they are ignorant that that a problem exists. There are people that don't have a conscience that just don't care, and and that certainly is part of it. But there's at least three groups here. There's the people with a conscience that, that care and are doing something about it. There's a, there's people with a conscience that, for whatever reason, and you know, and they, they probably have some responsibility in this as well. Uh, they're ignorant to the to the real root cause of the problem, and that the fact that there is even a problem. And then there's people that understand that it's a problem, just don't care. So, so I think that middle group is is a group that we could potentially work on and that's all about education right and it's yeah you, but you can't educate those who refuse to be educated um you can't you can't re- educate folks who refuse to listen to um at least not that i know of um, and so that it's it takes takes two parties for people to learn a teacher and a learner and a, you know there has to be listening involved so uh, that's a tough one. That's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, because we're so entrenched right now, we're so divisive, we're so polarized um, that we refuse to acknowledge the merit of anything on the other side because we we've formed into sides. Uh, because if we acknowledge merit in their point of view, we will lose and they will win. They will gain ground and we will lose ground. It's it's you know going back to duality, right?
1: It's, so, yeah. So
0: it's not we're we've oversimplified things to to a dangerous yeah. level.
1: And, may, and maybe that's why, you know, Mother Nature or the universe put us all in timeout.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe,
1: maybe that's why.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's starting to backfire too. So I, I am also optimistic, but we're going to, there's some bumps in the road still to go through. Um,
1: yeah. No, ab- no, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, I, I think that, you know, we're in a world that is much more complex than we like to admit. And I think just the, the, again, I go back to leadership. Like we need, um, we need leadership that allows us to unify and address, you know, address problems as a collective with um, more transparency and more unity than we've had in the past. Um, But, you know, I think some of, you know, some of the, some people who are not willing to come to the table now, I think so much of that is miseducation. You know, we've had hundreds of years of um, miseducation and erasure of, you know, of accurate history, right? Um, That's really been only written from kind of one default perspective instead of reflecting the totality of what um, has been the human experience here. And so, you know, I think there's, there's just there's work to do, right? There's work to do in um, in taking on um, the challenges that have been left to us by our parents' generation, right? The previous generations, and you know, this is work that they didn't take accountability for in their generations. And I think it's you know, it's on us now to um, make sure that we're not leaving this to our children, right? That we're not leaving these challenges to our children. Um, so hopefully we we answer that call and collectively we address it now.
0: You know, if, if I'm if, if I were to pick out one word that is the highlight and the and the important message of this conversation that we've had, I think it's default. Because even even as you were speaking, and you were talking about the need for leadership and you've done such a good job of of highlighting our defaults and how, you know, our. I call that in in the book that's coming out, our entrenched starting conditions, our default. It's just another word for default. And when you were speaking about the need for leadership, the default that popped into my head, and I'm sure popped into a lot of people's head, is, oh, she's talking about the upcoming presidential election. When I don't think that's this. I mean, I think we need to change the leadership there um, as well. But leadership can come from anywhere. It doesn't yeah. have to come from the government. The default is leadership comes from the government, right? And particularly the federal government in most cases. Leadership can come from anywhere. It can come through a grassroots movement. It can come through movements. It can come, you know, there, there's yeah. so many different places that leadership, real leadership, real altruistic servant leadership can come from. We haven't had servant leadership in, in a while. And uh, I wow. think we, we need that. Um, any any words of, of wisdom, any words of, of uh, Encouragement or any any last words you want to leave folks?
1: Um, you know, I think that this, as challenging as um, this great transition has felt, I think that there's, there's a real potential for transformation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that in itself is hopeful. And I hope that, you know, the fact that this opportunity has presented itself means that on some level as a collective, we're ready for this. And it feels like an opportunity for a rapid evolution, right? We're being pushed beyond our comfort zones in so many ways, right? That would have been decades or hundreds of years, right? You and I have been in so many of the same meetings at the UN and heard these conversations. You know, How many centuries does it take to overturn you know, this or meet these SDGs? And we're actually being presented with the potential to transform these things really quickly. So I, I, I think we're being given a real opportunity and um, I feel like you're one of the voices that I really look to in this time, because you provide a message that um, is missing in so many spaces. And I think, yeah, I think you're, you have such a unique perspective um, that has opportunity to unite a lot of people um, and help to. Um, forge a commonality in in how we make decisions, how we view each other, how we move forward. So um, I hope that you continue to be, um, you know, part of the conversation um, about how we move forward as a collective.
0: Yeah. And I, I will say the same exact thing to you. And thank you for all that you're doing as well. And uh, just one last point, because you brought up a really, really good point is, you know, we are going to get through this. And, you know, all group, gro- all growth comes with some discomfort and some pain and uh, a lot of growth occurs in darkness, right? Like, yeah. our, our, our minds are rejuvenated in the darkness of sleep, uh, A seed grows in the darkness of the ground, uh, a fetus grows in the darkness of a womb to become a beautiful sentient yeah. creature capable of, you know, pondering infinity in the meaning of life. <laughs> and so, we're in a somewhat of a dark time. We're certainly in an uncomfortable time. Um, but hopefully uh growth can come from that. And so Daniel, I, I really, really thank you for this conversation. I think it was great. And uh, I also want to thank you for all that you're doing to help make life on our planet as beautiful as our planet looks from space. You you've done some amazing things and uh and I, I thank you for that. Uh,
1: so thank you. It's so, been a real pleasure to be here with you today and any conversation that I can have with you
0: you know that I <laughs> it, vice versa and
1: you know thanks to everybody I'm who tuned in thanks honored. for all the
0: comments and questions and uh, and tune again next week same same channel same time so goodbye everybody Thank you for joining us during this conversation from the Orbital Perspective. And thank you for being a part of an emerging unity on our planet. We are strongest when we are aligned around the truth of our underlying unity. Together, we are unstoppable and can build a positive, restorative future, a future that we would all want to be a part of. Please subscribe to the Orbital Perspective podcast and follow us on social media. Thank you for all that you're doing and all that you will do to help make life on our planet as beautiful as it looks from space.